Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number two of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amorosa, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Welcome to episode number two of the Founder Podcast. It's great to have you all here and I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to listen and uh, share your time with me. You know, somebody's attention is so difficult to get. And I just want to say, like, honestly, thank you so much for taking the time and investing in yourself as an entrepreneur. And I promise you, if you stick around, you're going to learn a lot because, you know, I, I've been doing this for the past 18 months and it's crazy how much I've accelerated my personal learning from speaking with some of the most successful entrepreneurs in the planet. So there's a whole ton to share and I'm really excited. And like I said before in the first episode, if you're sick and tired of all the regular kind of podcasts and you you want to hear from, you know, big time founders and you know multimillionaires and all sorts of crazy, extremely successful entrepreneurs, some that you've never heard of, some that you've probably heard of the companies, but you don't know who's behind the brand and who started it all. You know, you've come to the right place. So that's it from me. If you are enjoying these interviews, can you please do me a favor and, uh, you know, leave us a five-star review in the uh, iTunes store. That would really, really help us. And also, I may as well plug myself, if you are loving these interviews too, you should check out the magazine. It really is my my blood, my sweat, my tears, so check it out. Today, we have Robert Green. He's a five times best-selling author, and he's a very, very intelligent guy. He's worked over 80 different jobs in his life before he found writing, and his books have been sold to over millions of people. In this interview, I talked to him about the process of achieving mastery and uh, certainly his take on what it takes to become a successful entrepreneur and writer. Robert also shares with me his number one tip on how to master anything. And he also shares with me some very interesting things that he's never shared before in any other interview. He even said to me after the call, I have never been asked some of those questions. So you've done your homework and I think you guys are going to really enjoy this interview. This one, actually, I must say, I recorded it oh, at least nine months ago, maybe a year ago. And I remember I was doing it, you know, on my lunch break of my day job. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, I am so lucky to be speaking with this guy. Because 
Yeah, it was just so extremely inspiring. And I shared this interview with some of my friends and they were like, Nathan, this is awesome. They just absolutely loved it. So if you want to get in touch with me, you can reach me at Nathan at founder, F-O-U-N-D-R, mag.com. No E between the D and the R. So yeah, look, it's... uh, It'd be great if you could leave us a five-star review if you want to get in touch with me. If there's anything I can do to help, please get in touch with me. That's enough from me, and uh, I hope you enjoy the show. Today I'm speaking with Robert Green. He's an American author, speaker, and business consultant, best known for his books on strategy, power, and seduction. He's written four international bestsellers, The 48 Laws of Power, The Art of Seduction, The 33 Strategies of War, and The 50th Law. So Robert, thank you for taking the time. Thank you very much for having me, Nathan. Thank you. Yeah, look, it's it's an absolute pleasure, man. I read your book, The Art of Seduction, Maybe about three or four years ago when I was trying to get better with girls. <laughs> yeah. And did it work? <laughs> look, I, I was – look, and this is me being totally open and honest. I've never spoke about this in any of my interviews. I'm just making myself vulnerable. But I went through a journey of, of wanting to get better with girls. And, um, yeah, look, I learned heaps from your book. It came as a recommendation from the game, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm friends with Neil. A lot of people have come to the art of seduction through his book. So great, yeah. Yeah, no, it's your your work is extremely interesting to say. So, can you tell us a little bit about how you got your job? Well, it's it's, it's not technically a job, but I've always wanted to be a writer. Knew that when I was a kid, and after university, I just couldn't figure out like how I was going to become a writer and make a living. So I worked in journalism and didn't really like it for various reasons. Traveled all around the world and lived in Europe for many years, doing all sorts of odd jobs, writing novels and essays and things. And that really wasn't quite working out, although I was having fun. And then I came back to L.A. where I'm born and raised and got into the film business, thinking that was where I could write and I worked as a screenwriter and, and, and other elements of production and stuff, and that wasn't right. I, I didn't, I didn't like the fact that you had no control over what you wrote, and eighty million people would would pile on top of what you did and change it, and it just just wasn't me. And I was about thirty five, thirty well, I was thirty six, about a point where my parents were getting ready to give up on me. You know, I was able to make a living in Hollywood and stuff, but I wasn't. I looked like I was sort of lost. And I met this man in Italy where I was working on yet another different job. And he was a book guy, a book packager, and he asked me if I had any ideas for a book. And it was one of those light bulb moments, one of those, I don't know what you would call it, epiphany, whatever, where it just suddenly goes, wow, the chance to write a book. Books are what I should be doing. And and when he asked me the question, I improvised what would turn into the 48 laws of power because I had seen in all of my different jobs, particularly in Hollywood, but also in journalism and elsewhere, I'd see all these power games being played by people and nobody writes about it. Nobody talks about it. When the door is closed and the CEO is, is figuring out what to do, he or she will do all sorts of Machiavellian things that are basically kind of a, a secret. And I didn't like that. I'm, I'm a guy who wants to sort of know what's really going on. And I read a lot of history. So with, with those two things, those two backgrounds, I improvised what would turn into the 48 Laws of Power. He loved it, the idea. Of course, it's easy to have an idea. But I was so desperate. If you know my work, I have an idea in one of my books called The Death Ground. You're on death ground. And it literally means your back is against the wall. You either win or you die. And that's how I was feeling. I'm like 36. If I don't make this book work, I'm just going to be a loser. I'm not going to ever make it in life. 
And with that kind of energy and excitement, I wrote that book in a very short period of time, working practically 24 hours a day. And then from there, it just took off. And I've been very blessed and lucky. And I've been able to have make a living really just on my books, but I also do other things. So that's my long-winded answer to your question. Yeah, no, look, thank you. And it's very interesting because a lot of people, they think that, you know, you when you go to school as a young person, you think that, that you've got it all worked out when you go you go to university and, and you get a job and, and that's it for you. That's That's what you're meant to do in life. And you've kind of gone on a journey of self-discovery, which has taken you a while. And uh, you mentioned that you've done around 80 different jobs to get where you are today to find out. Yeah. I gave a, you know, if, if your audience is interested, I, I gave a TED talk, a TEDx talk last year in, in London, in which I sort of explained the journey, the 80, 50 different jobs, whatever it really is. And, you know, why maybe it won't take people out there 15 years, and maybe hopefully it doesn't, but it is a journey. And it's a, it's a journey that you should feel excited about and not impatient and not nervous or anxious, particularly if you're an entrepreneur. And I consider myself an entrepreneur because I work for myself. I don't have a boss, which is paradise for me because I don't like the political environments so I am kind of an entrepreneur. I'm definitely an entrepreneur in spirit. And so to be an entrepreneur, you have to be willing to make mistakes, to lose yourself for a while, to figure things out. There's no school that's going to teach you how to do it, unfortunately. And if there were a school, it would be useless because you've got to do it on your own. You've got to figure out who you are, what your strengths and weaknesses are. Nobody can do that for you. So to feel like it's a journey and you're discovering what you're good at and what you're meant to create is just the best metaphor for it. And uh, I don't know if you didn't mention my fifth book in your introduction. I don't know if you're familiar with it, Mastery. Oh, of course. Yes. Love oh. it. Well, in Mastery, that's basically, oh, yeah, you did mention the life's test, so I'm sorry. Basically, you know, that's what I'm trying to lay out for you is it's almost like a physical journey. You know, I talk about Charles Darwin going to South America on a journey to discover what he was meant to do. We may not travel for it, but that's what it entails. And if you're someone that's only focused on the end result, which is money, power, fame, you won't have the patience to get there. You almost have to enjoy the process itself. So... You know, hopefully it won't take as long as me, but that's that's sort of the path I think any entrepreneur needs to follow. You know, that, and that's so true. It's it's funny, like so often more than not, the things that you end up finding yourself doing were not the things that you ever planned. And that's something that I see quite common amongst many people that I interview. Yes, and and that can be good and that can be bad. So how that is bad is, and it happens to a lot of people, you're not really sure of who you are or what you are meant to do. You follow a path like going to law school because that's lucrative and your parents tell you to do that. Then you end up going into law and you get a practice and you end up in some obscure type of law and you're 40 years old and you go, how the hell did I end up practicing international contract law when I was really interested in being a writer? Now, that's a bad sort of path to take where you end up in something that you never intended to. The good way of doing it is, I know I'm meant to be a writer or I'm meant to start my own business. I'm trying different businesses and suddenly after 10 years of experience, I hit upon an idea based on a lot of my experience and my interests that I never really realized before, but this is the right one. It's very exciting. That's the good one. And the difference between the two is the knowledge of where you were meant to be headed. You can have surprises. You're out to sea. You're, you're on your way from the United States to Australia, and you come upon an island you didn't expect. Great. But if you're out to sea and you have no idea where you're going, then you're lost. And so it's the difference of having a sense of direction, and then the surprises are, are positive and beneficial. It's a great insight. 
I'm just curious, with where you are today, with your with your writing and the level of success you've had with your books, what did you have to sacrifice to be where you are today? What did you have to give up to get where you are today? Well, that's a great question. It's a, um, you know, I'm always surprised when somebody asks me a question that no one else has ever asked, and it's been 15 years I've had these questions. You know, I had to give up some of my laziness. I, I tend to wander around and do things that I just like and kind of, oh, I read a book, and then I pick up something I want to write. I've had to be much more disciplined and focused and give up kind of all my eclectic interests, you know, and, and give up playing the sport or playing the piano and focus on something. That would probably be the only thing I've really had to give up for my work. And it's a good thing. Being focused and knowing what you have to do and giving up the things that aren't really that important in the long run makes you a lot happier. I, I'm sure there's something else I could think of, but everything that I've gotten from my, the writing career is a positive. So, you know, having to give up looking for bad jobs and having to give up worrying about money, you know, I guess those don't really count. So I just say, you know, having to be so disciplined and giving up other activities that distract from the writing. I see. It's one of my favorite questions that I quite often like to ask people. Sometimes it, it throws people off and they often say, you know, I've never, yeah, yeah. I've never received yeah. that kind of question because that's what really interests me because the, the people that we feature, the people that we interview, they're living their life like most other people wouldn't or, or a lot of other people in this world wouldn't. And I, and I like to understand that I, and I want to know what it takes. Well, one, one thing I did, if you put it that way, one thing I'd have to say is I don't have as much of a social life as I used to. I have a social life. I'm not a hermit. But the time that I used to have for that, I had to sacrifice. Because to write, you have to be alone. And you sometimes for a whole year, I disappear and don't answer emails and just focus on writing. So I'd have to say that would maybe be one of the main things you have to. I've had to sacrifice is a very rich act of social life, which, you know, it's, it's sometimes I miss. Hmm. And then let's talk about your writing. What's What's been the hardest thing about writing for you? Well, you know, the hardest thing has been the physical element. The reason is that my the books that I write are kind of different. I do a lot of research. I don't want to write a book about power or seduction without the feeling that I'm, I'm standing on something solid. I don't want to simply imagine or, or blow bubbles out of my mind. I want to have actual research and, and studies and, and books to back it up. So for that, I will read on average three to 400 books to produce one book. And I have to organize all of that material in a very elaborate system because it can get very complicated. And then I have to take all of that material and then I have to write it. And it, it is a physical, physical drain that by the end of the book, like by the time I finished my third book on the strategies of war, I was like physically done. I, I was so exhausted. I thought I was going to get seriously ill. And it took me like a year to kind of recover. And I've been working on it. I'm trying to get myself stronger and more mentally prepared so I'm not so drained by the end of the process. But that's probably been the, the most difficult thing in, in terms of the books that I write. Wow, fascinating. And can you tell us about how you've developed your own system of, or routine of working every day to work on these books? It depends on where, where I am in the process. So in the beginning, like now where I'm working on my sixth book, I'm, I'm just reading. And it's pretty open. I just read all day long. And it's a lot of fun. And then a few months later, I'll be starting to take notes on what I've read, and I have to put those onto cards. And that gets starting to get a little bit tiring and tedious, and I work on that pretty, pretty hard. And then maybe a year or a year and a half after I'm through that, then I'm writing. And I only can really write about three to four hours a day, or uh, it's too much. So at that point, you know, I, I put in a few hours in the morning or sometimes I write best in the afternoon and then that's it. I'm too drained. I'm too exhausted because I have to take all of my note cards 
and then write from them and then rewrite and rewrite. And there's a lot of thinking going on. So if I have an idea, like I had in my last book about the apprenticeship and, and, and the learning process, I don't like if, if I feel like an idea isn't fully fleshed out. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe what I'm saying is actually wrong. So I have to like think and rewrite and rewrite and rethink and rewrite. And you do that for four hours and there's not much left in the tank. So that's, that's pretty much my process. Interesting. Now, I read about your cards from a post that, that Ryan Holiday did. Yes. And I found it extremely fascinating. How did you come up with that system of having all these cards that you have in like this suitcase that you carry around with you <laughs> everywhere, especially in today's age, technology and things like Evernote? Can you tell me about that? Yeah, yeah I'm a bit of a caveman that way. Um, back in my home where I grew up and I was looking at one of my drawers when I was a kid and there were like note cards. When I was 14, I was sort of using note cards. So maybe there's something that goes pretty deep inside me. I was writing the 48 Laws of Power, and I had all of this research, and I was writing notes in a notebook, and I got like, it's too, this is way too confusing. Now, of course, we're talking about 1996, and there were computers back then, and I was working on one, but I like to take notes in, in a notebook, and, in, and you never really thought of doing notes in a, in a, on a computer. And I'm thinking, I can't look at all of my different ideas at the same time. It's getting way too confusing. So I just naturally turned to putting things on cards, and I developed a system. And I think the system, I wouldn't be able to write the books I do without the system. And I tell people as in my consulting work that being organized in whatever field you're in is like the most important skill of all. You have to develop your own organizational method. But if I didn't have these note cards in which I could take my 50 different ideas and put them on color-coded cards and file them under categories and then quickly sift through them and see, ah, these are all of the ideas that pertain to the counterattack strategy in, in business and war. If I weren't able to suddenly look at those 50 cards, I couldn't literally write a book. I'd be overwhelmed by my material. And the book itself would reflect it. it I read a lot of books nowadays where I go, the writer has not organized his material. He or she is overwhelmed by the research. And the book, you, you find they're repeating the same ideas or they run out of energy. So I literally evolved a system that I could not function without. And I, each book is a little bit different. The war book, I have 2,000 note cards. The 50th law is more like 400 note cards. It just depends. But it's it's a great system, and as you said, Ryan, I taught it to him. He wrote about it. You can read about it through Ryan. I can only say, you know, it, it's a great way to work or organize your thoughts. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. It it strikes me as as you use the note cards as your external brain. Yeah. Well, there's a, a writer who talks about the ex external memory system. I forget his name saying essentially that writing is an external memory system, that the human brain could not handle the amount of information it had thousands of years ago, and so writing was established as a way to extend our, our basic memory. And so this system, why it, it works so well is I'm taking cards on all of these things that I obviously could never remember, but I can compare each card to the other and say, and take this bit of knowledge or information and compare it and say, oh, these are related or these contradict each other. If you had a computer, if you put all of your cards on a computer, which you can do now and I might do just, just for backup purposes, you don't have that functionality. You can't compare quickly 12 cards on 12 different ideas where you can look at the back and the front and sift through them with your fingertips and see this and that. So it is a complete memory system that extends my memory so that 400 books are now at my fingertip and I don't have to rely on anything and I can use that. So you're, you're very accurate in what you say. This is the kind of stuff that I find really interesting. So no, thank, thank you for sharing that. 
Let's switch gears and talk about strategy. Now, I know you're, you're a business consultant and you're on the board for American Apparel. Yes. When you, when you come across businesses with challenges, what are the most common problems that you see and what are common remedies that you have to provide? Pretty much, I want to know, in your opinion, what do you think it takes to build a successful business? Well, I make it clear in my consulting work that I'm not a, a technical person. I don't have a business background. So when it comes to numbers and X's and O's and telling you a business plan and EBITDA and all these things, don't come to me. I really am horrifically ignorant. But I know strategy and I know people. And business, I tell the people who come to me, is 99% psychology, working with people, and strategy. And then those numbers come in and the technical aspect, and they're important. But they're actually the easiest part to learn and master. What's absolutely impossible to master, or not impossible, but very difficult, is working with people, figuring them out, their weirdness, their complexity, and having a good, sound, strategic mind. So the people that come to me generally are very technically brilliant. They know their work well. They've come up with a great idea, but they've partnered up with a person who's awful, who's got really bad character, or they have employees that are just totally unmotivated and couldn't give a damn about the company, or they have colleagues who they thought were on their side but that are scheming against them, or they say and do things that they thought were really smart, but now they realize that it's offended someone and they're in a battle and they didn't understand how it happened, or they come up with a plan that is just so irrational, that has no sense of really what's going on in the world. It's just a function of what they want to see. These are the kinds of things I can deal with, and I get a lot of them. And I'll tell people the main quality after I, I've consulted with over 100 different people and in very intense ways, and then as you said, I'm on the board of American Apparel, the quality that's the most important for a leader, an entrepreneur that I know is the ability to learn. The greatest danger that you face is even if you're successful, you come to believe that you're just God himself or herself, that you've possessed of this wisdom, that you know exactly what needs to be done. And I get people who come to me for advice and they don't listen to me. I tell them exactly what their problem is. They don't listen to me. And then a year later, they come back realizing that they didn't follow it because they don't want to listen. They want to hear a reflection of what they are already wanting to see. So you give me a leader, particularly someone in their 30s, because it's a little easier when you're in your 20s, who can listen, who can learn, who can take a step back and say, I'm not going to repeat the same thing that I did five years ago with this company because repeating a strategy is a recipe for disaster. I'm going to learn I'm going to be modern. I'm going to be up to date. You have a mind that's flexible. You're going to make it. And I, I, find I can work with people like that. And people like that will always land on their feet. There are other bits of wisdom I could share with you. But I really swear that's the main thing is are you willing and open to learning and not constantly repeating what you've done before or what the things that you the conventional wisdom. That's sort of the main quality. Awesome. Now, learning and, and reading and consuming information, is that something that, that you've always had inside of you? It's hard to say because I only live with myself and I don't know what other people are like. <laughs> so I take my life as normal, but maybe it's not normal. And, you know, I love reading books. But the main thing is... I guess I'd have to say I really, really hate it when people think they know the answer. I like beginning from a point of view where I'm probably wrong. I don't know. I'm ignorant. And I think A is right, but it's actually B. Okay, that's great. That's really good. I like the fact that I was proven wrong. And when you have that, then you've just got a hunger 
for absorbing as much knowledge and information as possible because that's the way to cover your ignorance. That's how you figure things out. Recently, you know, I've been in a couple situations. I mean, to this day, if I have somebody read something that I've done and they say, this isn't right or this isn't very good, I take a step back and I go, you know, you're probably right. Or I see the wisdom in what they're saying. I haven't reached a point after 15 years of this, and I'm pretty successful, where I feel like I know it all and I can't listen to people. So I've been that way for a long time, and hopefully I can stay that way into my 60s, 70s, and 80s, you know. Now, look, you're a very humble man, and, and it's something, yeah, it's something I was curious about. There's something that I wanted to ask you, and and that's pretty much from from your book, Mastery. If I were to sum it up, a big part of it is, is that there's no shortcuts to success. It's going to take 10,000 hours. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, that's the main point of the whole book because, I mean, there were several reasons why I wrote Mastery, but one of the main inspirations was I'm, I'm a little concerned with people in the age that we're living in who believe that because our technology is so powerful that we can almost just do anything and that I can learn a skill in a lot shorter time. And it's a, do, it's a different world than 100 years ago, and I don't need to spend as much time learning something as people did in the past. We have so much more information and yada, da, da, da. And I just see a lot of people out there who never finish with their ideas. They build something that's really badly built or organized. A lot of shoddy work out there or people who build a business and they're lazy. They don't put enough thought into it. They're not consistent. They don't see it all the way through. And I wanted to kind of combat this mental disease I think that is spreading across the planet that things can come easily and quickly because technology is allowing us to do that. Technology is wonderful. It's brilliant. It's a tool. It's a tool just like a hammer is a tool. But it depends on the human brain using the tool. And that brain hasn't changed. It took hundreds of thousands of years for your brain to evolve into the way it is now. You're not going to change that because you have an app or because you went to a good school or because you're on a good diet. You're not going to change it. The brain goes a certain way which means basically the longer you spend learning something, the more you practice a skill, the more deeply you go into it, the better you get at it, the more layers of reality you uncover, the more creative you become. Now, there are parts of that that aren't completely true. In other words, you could practice something for 10 years and it gets stale and you hit a dead end and your mind isn't working anymore. I, I cover that in the book, that particular problem. So you have to stay fluid and creative with what you're doing. But the longer you spend doing something, the closer you get to the reality of it. And so that was what I wanted to show you in the book. You know, let's say you wanted to learn a foreign language just as a simple thing, as a simple metaphor. You think that you know, you can learn it in, in three months because there are new books and tapes and methods out there and you, you buy them, you spend the hundreds of dollars and you, you practice with the books and tapes and then you go to France and you still can't say anything. You know, it, it, it's still, you're still mumbling and you can't understand what the hell people are saying. You have to go to France and you have to immerse yourself in the language and you have to hear it in your head and you have to have a French girlfriend whom you're speaking with French day in and day out and after a year, you're suddenly speaking pretty good French. And after two years, you're almost fluent. And after five years, you are fluent. There are no shortcuts to that. Just put that into your brain and, and, and file it away under truth. There are no shortcuts to learning and speaking French fluently. And I can say the same for running a business, for learning the piano, for physics or whatever. So that's the inspiration behind Mastery. It was a great book, and, and I loved it so much. Something that shouts out, out at me, though, and this, this might challenge you, is are you familiar with, with Tim Ferriss's latest show, The Tim Ferriss Experiment? Well, I knew, that, I knew this was coming. 
and I knew that Tim Ferriss would be, you mentioned him. I don't know the show. I know his books and his methods and the four hour chef and, and things like that. His book came out just as mastery was coming out and Tim and I have some common friends and he's a, he's a great person. I haven't delved deeply into his books to be able to refute them. Okay. But I am refuting the notion that you can master something with a shortcut. And until somebody, and I've come up with examples, and people have brought up his examples, such as martial arts, etc. And there are things you have to understand about what I'm talking about. You can master a basic skill. Let's, let's differentiate between basic skills and complex skills. A basic skill is something simple, manual, driving a car, learning certain basic self-defense movements, learning the game of chess and, and playing it well. Those basic skills are simple. They they're revolve around basically one thing. And perhaps there is a way to shorten that a little bit, only that the accumulated wisdom of the years, people have come up with systems that can speed it up. And with my example of language, People have come up with systems to speed up a little bit the learning process because we've learned things from the past. Okay, I, I agree with that. But a complex skill is what's going to make you famous, successful, happy. You're not going to be successful just because you know how to drive a car or you know certain self-defense movements or you can basically put together some ingredients that you cook. You're going to need to put those skills together in a way that's creative and meaningful and nobody else has done in the world. And there is no shortcut to that. You can't get everything from other people or a system. You have to go through the process itself. So let's say there's a way to learn the basics of chess in a fast way based on all of the wisdom of the ages. You still have to have 10,000 hours of playing because you have to have played so many games before those patterns are imprinted in your brain and you're thinking in terms of what are called chunks. Hmm. Nobody that's going to get you to that point quicker unless they invent in the future some matrix type way of literally implanting it in your brain. So I should qualify it that way. There's no way to break through a shortcut to get you to the point where you're thinking in chunks. What upsets me is the idea if you're thinking like, I want a shortcut, you already have a problem. You already might be on your way to becoming a loser because you have to love work. You have to love discipline. You have to love the repetitiveness, the learning process itself. And if you can speed it up through this or that, that okay, great. I'll use that. But I enjoy the time that it takes and I embrace the process. So are you a person that embraces the process or are you this nervous, impatient person that has to learn things faster than other people? That's, to me, the dividing line between someone who will be successful and someone who will just be a dilettante. Yeah, wow. Look, I love that answer. That was, that was brilliant. And it just makes me think that we live, we live in a society, in a world now when people want everything now. They want faster internet and and I can totally understand where you're coming from and your the reason you, you wrote the book, Mastery. And you look at someone like Richard Branson and you only see the end product. That's right. And so often, you know, his story is, is commercialized. And, and, and this is not me bagging out Richard Branson, not in the bit, because we actually interviewed him for the magazine. And I wanted to go down and find out what it took and, and how much time it spent and, and really try and get behind the scenes to, to, to show people that there is no shortcut. Well, I, I mean, on that, on that point, when my book came out, it was too late for me to put Steve Jobs in there because he was dying and there wasn't really enough detailed information. And then the book came out just as I was finishing Mastery. So I read the biography after the book was finished and I go, damn, I wish I had been able to include him. But just go read the 800, 700-page biography of Steve Jobs and you'll see the same thing. Yeah. He starts at an early age with a love of computers and, and design, but he has a lot of failures. He's brash. He's not good with people. His 
Lisa Macintosh was kind of a disaster. He leaves Macintosh, you know, after eight years or so with the company, and then he founds this company called Next, this kind of cube computer that he did in the late 80s, early 90s, and that's a total failure. If you add up, he's like 20 years now, and we come to the 1990s, and if that had been Steve Jobs' legacy, he wouldn't be anywhere famous, really. He'd be another little footnote in the history of computing. It's when he comes back to Apple, and now all of a sudden, it's the late 90s, early 2000s, and suddenly that 10,000, 20,000 hours of work, the things, the lessons he learned, the mistakes he made, the feel that he has for what's going on in, in technology all comes to blossom. And he's now suddenly on another level. And it begins, to me, with the idea for the iPod that starts the whole ball rolling. He would have never come up with such an idea. Of course, the technology didn't exist, but earlier on in his life. So what do you say? You look at somebody like that, and you can literally see the demonstration of what I'm talking about. He was brilliant, no, no doubt, and he had some success early on. But the truly real creativity that he demonstrates didn't come along until literally after 20 years of intense experience in computing and designing computers. So there you have it. You know, He's sort of the icon that we hold up for modern creativity and mastery, and he, he demonstrates it through and through. Mm, yeah, no, look, that's spot on. Can you tell us about, on the topic of mastery, can you tell us about apprenticeships? Well, really what I wanted to do with that, it's, you know, it's a word that seems a little bit musty, like it goes back to the Middle Ages, and really who nobody goes through a real formal apprenticeship like they used to in the old days. And I wanted to bring it back because basically it is a metaphor, but I want you to think of it, your life, in terms of this metaphor. You go through the university system, if you go take it that far, and you've learned a certain way of, of learning, which is largely passive. You read books, you write essays, you take tests, and then the professor grades you. And then suddenly you're thrust out into the real world. And suddenly you go from having a, a professor and maybe parents to nobody is there to really guide you in a real one-on-one -on -one direct way. And that's where most people go wrong. That's where you're 22, you enter the real world, and there your mistakes start accumulating and you take a couple wrong steps. And I want to try and say, okay, here's your 20s. Let's say you're age 22 to 30. It could vary. Think of it as now the next phase in your education. It is not just some random period in your life. It's not a period for you to just party and figure out where you want to go and, hey, man, you know, hang loose, et cetera. It is the next step in your education. It's an eight-year, seven, eight-year period in which you have to be the one in control of it. You have to figure out what you want to learn, what direction you want to go, who you want to be, more or less. You don't need to know exactly. And with that, thinking in those terms, then certain changes occur that are very practical. So, for instance, what matters in this period is learning, skills, and not money. So that changes the decisions you make. If you're offered a job when you're 24 that's going to pay you a lot of money, it seems very alluring. It makes you look sexy. Girls are going to like you. Your parents will be happy. But you're in a big firm, and you're not going to learn very much. And you're going to have responsibilities that you're not really ready for. Don't take it. Take that job with that little tiny company with four or five people, half the salary. People will wonder what you're doing. The business will probably go under in three years. But you're going to learn hands-on. And that's what you value in the apprenticeship phase. Learning as many skills, life skills, technical skills, people skills, that's the goal that you're after. So now think of your, that period of your life as learning real-life practical skills. The intellectual abstract education is over. Now you're in a practical education phase. And when that's over, if you go through the right apprenticeship, your whole life will just unfold in a natural progression and you'll become successful and powerful. 
that's the most critical part of any person's life. And that's where I think a lot of people go wrong. Love it. Yeah, look, I, I look at it when we talk about apprenticeships and I look at my own life and and I often say to my mum that, you know, if, if I had my time all over again, I'd do this, I'd do that. And But after reading your book and, and the way you just described it then to me, it makes me feel that every everything that I've done, it equipped me for where I am today. Right. Yeah, that's that's very much a part of the process. You know, sometimes you do something that's stupid or foolish. You, you take a job that maybe you shouldn't have. But there's always something you can learn from it. And that's part of your apprenticeship. So, for instance, I was early in my journalism career was working for a magazine. I'd taken a job because it was a high-level position, but it was a really boring magazine, and I really hated the people there, and it just, it just was soul, you know, crunching or whatever. And I got another job was offered to me at a, a similar position, but at a magazine that was really exciting, that just was so much more interesting. And without much thought, I left and took this new job, basically burning my bridge to the old job. And in the new job, it went under after about three weeks. And now I was left unemployed and pretty much had burned bridges, making my employment situation a little bit difficult. And it like, wow, I, I made a mistake. What, what did I do? But then I figured months, a couple months afterwards, I go, this was not a mistake. I really don't like journalism. This was really a problem. I don't want to go back and grovel and get another one of those jobs again. I learned from it. I learned to be more patient, to do better research on the new company that I'm taking, etc. Even the worst thing that happens to you, you're always learning something about yourself and you're always learning something about other people. You have a job that you hate your boss. Well, now you're, you're filing away. First of all, I don't like working for other people, so I'm going to become an entrepreneur. But B, I'm never going to become this boss. I'm never going to be like him or her. So if that's your attitude, then you're learning from everything that's happening to you and you're making the most of your apprenticeship phase. Yeah, look, I, I love it. I love it. Look, we have to work towards wrapping up. I, I could speak to you all day, man. Like I'm loving this conversation. I just wanted to say, what book have you read? I know you've read hundreds of books. What, what book have you read that, that's had the most profound impact on your life, if you could name one? It's really difficult. It's really complicated and hard to do because, it's, you know, when you add up the books over my life, there's just thousands upon thousands. The particular kind of books that I do and the turning point in my life in which I did the 48 Laws of Power, I would have to go back in time and say it was Machiavelli, perhaps the prince, in the sense of it's a way of looking at the world that I really like, loved and influenced me and is sort of is the spirit behind all my books. And basically why is he's this consummate realist. He's looking at the world and saying, this is what people are up to. Let's analyze it. Let's not get moralistic. Let's not judge. Let's not uh, preach. Let's just look at how people are, what power is about, who has power, why they have power, and let's analyze it. And just the realism of it, the practicality, the pragmatism, it seems so refreshing to me in a world where people are so unrealistic and so unpragmatic. So I don't know if, you know, it's not necessarily to tell people out there that you need to go read The Prince and that it'll change your life, although it is a great book. For me, it had the biggest impact because I thought, this is how I want to write my books. I want to give it to you straight. You can use it or you can hate it or whatever, but you've got, this is how power works. This is how seduction works. So he's like, the spirit that has most influenced me in, in of all the books that I've read. Awesome. All right, look, um, yeah, like I said, we have to we have to work towards wrapping up. Um, I just wanted to say it's been an absolute pleasure, man. I've I've really really enjoyed speaking with you. I feel really blessed to to get an hour of your time. Do you have any final parting words to to finish off this interview? 
Was there any questions that, that you wanted me to ask you that I didn't ask you that you'd like to answer? Or? Well, there's so many things, it's hard to get it all in. But, you know, one thing I try to impress on it is, you know, the word master and mastery it can be a little intimidating. Like, you know, well, I just want to be kind of good at what I'm doing or I could never get there. And I wanted to try and get away from this sort of intimidating notion. I, I do. I interviewed contemporary masters who aren't so august as da Vinci, or et cetera. But really, the thing to keep in mind is it's eminently attainable by anybody. And it's actually really fun. You know, people think of the 10,000 hours, the 20,000 hours that I'm talking about. You go, oh, man, I don't want to. Put, I want to have fun. I don't want to be spending my life learning things and repeating and etc. But what I'm trying to say in the book is, is your scale of fun and pleasure like just having fun in the moment and going to a movie and, and, and just sort of playing around, which has, you know, believe me, I have nothing against that and I do a fair share myself. <laughs> or is your sense of pleasure a larger feeling of fulfillment? Like, wow. I spent five years building this company, and now it's successful, and now I can sell it, and now I can – that feeling that you have from building something and the process of getting there, it's so exciting and fun. Of course, you know, there's, there's boredom and there's, there's setbacks, but it's much better – as a much better pleasure than just playing video games. So – a, it's eminently attainable by anybody if you go through the process, which is the point of the book. But B, it leads to something that's a lot more fulfilling, and it's not just this sort of boring 10,000-hour you know, trudge through my youth spent learning something. It's actually really the, almost the most exciting adventure you can be on. So that would be that, the last point I'd put. That was awesome. Love it. All right, well, look, Robert, we have, to, we have to wrap things up. But, yeah, look, thanks again for your time, man. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.